Some people ask me, occasionally I get questions about, why do I do announcements at the beginning of the sermon? Somehow, it, I was taught this as a youngster, that interrupts the flow of worship. Uh, I don't think that way anymore. I think that what's in here is just as much a part of worship as when we're in the Word, as when we're singing, as when you're giving, as when we're celebrating communion together. Because you know what this is? This represents life, represents us, doesn't it? What goes on? And if you, don't, if, you ever, if you don't ever take the time, just stop and read what's in here. There's a lot of information in here. Things to pray for, things that are going on. For example, you have an insert, all right? Judy Deal is teaching a class. If you ever wondered about how to fit in to our church, where to serve, uh, this is a class that begins to explore the basics on what are your passions and spiritual gifts and that sort of thing. I highly recommend it that you go to it. If you look on the back, we have several other things. Uh, Ruth is not here. She was here the first service. But if you see Ruth Petrick or Bob Carroll, they're the ones that organize Faith Day every, every year. How many of you went to Faith Day? Let me see a bunch of you. We have, every year we have 100. She buys 100 tickets, and they sell them all. And she was just telling me out there, it's the most amazing thing, because um, she buys these tickets always at the beginning of the year in Faith. Uh, and then about two weeks before, she's only sold 50 of them. And then she always has to remind herself, this is Summit County. <laughs> and I always have to remind her, it, it'll, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 they all sell. And then in the last week, people call in and say, um, I can't go, something happened, I'm going to be out of town. So she ends up with a bunch of tickets back. And then we get phone calls, uh, do you have three extra tickets? I actually have to have three. Do you have four? Well, I have four. And so the way it always works, she says, every year is 100% of them are gone. And uh, we had a great time. I happened to have the privilege of sitting between two 13-year-old girls. And it was fantastic. I got to eat their cotton candy. That's life, isn't it? Isn't that what community is all about? We have our congregational meeting coming up on the 27th. Uh, you won't want to miss it. It's the highlight of the year. It's better than my sermons. Okay. And uh, only members get to vote. But that's where we talk about the budget. In fact, if you haven't read our ministry plan or budget, you can download it from our website. Uh, it, it, it's exciting reading. It really is. You don't even have to be into budgets to be excited about it because it kind of tells you where we're going and what we're working on. You can get the bios there from the new elders that you're going to be voting on. And even if you're not a member, even though you can't vote, I would encourage you to come anyway and just learn about the life of our church and how we work together. So those things that are in there, I highlight two or three of them every week. They're, they're pictures of life. They're pictures of us as a community, aren't they? And so uh, read it. Pray about the things that are in there. Enjoy learning about things. Go to some of the classes on Wednesday night. Try some of these things out. Okay, we've been in a series, and we're talking about victory in this series. And um, the... We're looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And the reason why we picked that, when I mentioned victory in Christ, most people don't think about those seven letters, but every letter concludes to the one who's victorious. And uh, the majority, overwhelming majority of the words for victory are found in Revelation. The book of Revelation is the, is the one book in the New Testament and the Bible that develops the concept of victory more than any others. And so we decided to do the seven churches over seven weeks. 
So let's stop and take stock of where we've come so far. Let's kind of do a, a mid-series pulse here. In Ephesians 2 and 3, are where the, I mean uh, Revelation 2 and 3 are where these letters are. The first one is to the church in Ephesus. Here we talked about abandonment, the concept of abandonment. Each of these letters gives us a warning of what to avoid as a church, to be careful of, pay attention to, and the particular reward related to it. Also, every one of these letters is very culturally influenced. The words that are used relate to the culture in which that particular church exists. And we're going to see that again today. But the first one was abandonment. Specifically, what happens when we abandon our first love, our love for Jesus, which necessarily flows out into our love for each other and the love for the people of our world, our friends, our neighbors, those that we meet who don't know Christ. And what happens if we abandon that first love? That was the first one. And so what do we get to the one who's victorious? I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And in that particular letter, we looked at uh, there's a tree. There was a tree in Ephesus at the temple. Uh, and this is being contrasted to that. And we did a survey through Proverbs and some of the old, other Old Testament passages and talked about the tree of life is a metaphor for what we get out of the, the new covenant in community. If we have a healthy community, then we begin to taste, just taste the joy that comes from being in Christ. How many of you went to the marriage seminar yesterday? Let me see your hands. Oh, a bunch of you. Are your marriages still together? That's a good sign. You know, Nancy and I had a blast. We've married 32 years. I remind her from time to time, it's a good thing she married such a great guy all those years ago. So that was a joke, by the way. (laughs) Ah, there we go. (laughs) So we had a great time yesterday. We got to talk every session. He sent us out for a half hour or more to talk about things. And we talked about things that we've talked about many times. And and for, for a brief period of time, the marriage is so good. As Mark likes to say, we've been married 30-something years, 18 of them happily, you know? And as Mark just said in the first service, you know, I get 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there. And so it, it, we tasted it again yesterday. It was just so delightful. That's what happens. That's what the tree of life is reminding us of. Yes, there's something better coming. There is. When we talk about eternal life, we have managed to communicate to most of you that that's something out there. You know, the word eternal is just an adjective. It's just a modifier. Take it off. The free gift of God is life. Life. There's other modifiers you could attach to it, which are also biblical. An abundant life. A fulfilled life. A joyful life. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. All of those words also fit with life genuine life. When you turn to Christ, that's what you get as a gift. Genuine life. And you start to taste it now. The modifier eternal just lets you know that it happens to be for eternity. But the real emphasis is on life. Does that make sense? And we've turned to, tended to turn it into a very platonic idea. Plato suggested that we'll never reach happiness or fulfillment or enlightenment until we escape the boundaries of the material world. 
And sadly, that has drastically impacted Christianity because many of us have developed an escapist mentality. That's not good theology. No, no, no. We should begin to enjoy it right now. And it's up to us to create it right here in our own group, in our own community, a good, good, healthy community where we taste, even now, we begin to taste that, that enjoyment, that life, that energy, that love, all of those things that fit in there. And it gives us a sense of what's coming one day. So don't think of eternal life. Think of life that goes on for eternity that we get right now. Okay, the second letter, the letter to Smyrna, he talks about there, um, what it, we brought up the idea of distraction. That's where I pulled out my phone. I said, what distracts you? You know, my phone is one thing that distracts me if I'm not careful. We're surrounded by distraction. Satan loves to distract us. And here, they're, they're a town, a city, we're a very small church. They're struggling with poverty and all that. And he encourages them to be faithful. And they would get the victor's crown and they won't be hurt by the second death. They will experience, because we've turned to faith, uh, this is true for us, we don't have to worry about the second death. That's the death where we're separated from God for eternity. That's not our lot. We We don't have to be afraid anymore. We enjoy what we're tasting now in bits and pieces. We get to enjoy from now on for all of eternity. Stay faithful. What we're doing is we're giving you a picture of all the different things that make up the concept of victory so that we're motivated as a church to stay faithful, to hang in there, not give up. The third one, to the Church of Pergamum last week. There we talked about cultural assimilation. This church, and he used uh, Balaam and Balak, um, so he used a story out of Numbers to illustrate that this church was going outside of their church, and they were beginning to assimilate into culture. They not only became like culture, but they're moving out into culture. That's what happened with Balaam. He enticed, uh, he talked to the women of Moab, and they enticed Israelite men to go join them out there. And he says here, to the one who's victorious, who stays faithful, I'll give two things. Some of the hidden manna, that's that nourishment that, that comes from Christ. The true fulfillment said, I am the true bread right? I am the true water. And that's what communion symbolizes is every week our turning to Christ and experiencing that nourishment. And the healthier we are and the more Christ is part of our midst and our relationships, the more we taste. We get, again, just a taste of what that means. Give that true hidden manna. But then he talks about a white stone with a new name on it. And uh, we kind of puzzled over that. That's a little difficult to understand. But in uh, Pergamum, as best we can tell, one of the ways they invited people to festivals of the gods was they'd give them a white stone with their name engraved on it. And so what he's saying is you're going to get a white stone with your name on it, a name that only you know. It's so special, you're the only one that knows it. You're being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're invited to the true festivals of God, not the pagan festivals. Today, we're in Thyatira. Thyatira. Thyatira is also on the western edge of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. It's not like the other six. I mean, the other three. Well, it's not like the rest of the cities of the other six, but it's not like the three we studied. It's not a wealthy town. It's not a seaport. It's a town that's, uh, you might think of an industrial middle-class town. 
You might think of a town like that. These are just hard workers. They're making their way, trying to live life. It's very different. The other three that we've looked at so far were seaports, a lot of wealth, a lot of poverty. They had uh, temples to all the emperors. They uh, housed the imperial cult, and they had all kinds of big temples. Not so here in Thyatira. This is a middle-class city. And so we're going to read this. These are the words of the Son of God. Oh, we have a new phrase all of a sudden. Hmm. Whose eyes are blazing like fire... Ooh, picture that. They look right into your life. Am I frightening you? Good. These eyes, they penetrate. They look right into your life. Jesus knows exactly what is happening with every one of you. You can run, but you Get used to it. Get used to it. Get used to it. What a gracious God we serve that he allows us to sin. Is that gracious? He looks right into your life. I love that phrase. Some of you have children. You ever let your children sin and just kind of step back out of the way? Willing to let them start to learn consequences? God's done that with me more than once. So, he has eyes like blazing fire. Their feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, now this goes right back to chapter 1, verse 14. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet are like a bronze glowing in a furnace. Like bronze glowing in a furnace. Every one of these opening words takes us back to Jesus' description in chapter 1. What we're going to find out is every one of these descriptions of Jesus is related to the culture in which he's writing, okay? And each one gives us a different snapshot of who he is. And when you put them all together, when we're all done with the seven letters, we're going to have a picture of Jesus who connects with us in our world. For example, feet like burnished bronze. You know what Thyatira is known for? Smelting of bronze. He's speaking their language. It's true of every letter. He's speaking their language. And you know who the god, they, their patron god was? Their local tribal deity, Apollo. The patron god of bronze. That's who their local god was. So he says, these are the words of the Son of God whose feet are like bronze. If you lived in that part of the world, that was your town, you would have heard several things. Because on the coin of Thyatira, there is a symbol of the god Apollo, who is their local tribal deity, with the words, Son of God, giving homage to the emperor. And here's what he's saying. We serve the true God, who is the true Son of God, and who oversees the bronze trade. We serve the true living God. See how this is just speaking their language and their culture? And here's what he says. He gives them a compliment. I know your deeds. I love these. I pray that these are part of, describe us as a church. This is the words I want to describe us. Your faith. I mean, your love. Your love. Your faith. Your service. Your perseverance or your patience. And that you are now doing more than you did at the first. This is a church who's growing and maturing. Are these good words? You want them to describe us? If so, you have to make it happen, by the way. 
I can't do it for you. I can give you the vision. I can, you know, get up here and talk to you. But you're the ones that have to live out your love, your faith, your servants, your patience. You're the one that has to do it. I love this. Ah, but I have this against you. Here we go again. We're used to this, aren't we? I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. We'll come back and talk about Jezebel in just a minute. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Okay? She's leading them out. You see, Thyatira was, because it's a middle-class city, its primary source of income was industry and trade. It wasn't filled with lots of wealth. It wasn't filled with lots of, there no Roman senators went there that I know of for vacation. These are just normal working people. And the way working people made a living in the first century world was being part of trade associations or guilds. And they connected. We do that at the Better Business Bureau, don't we? Things like that. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's how they did their business. And so they knew one another. And they lived in the same community and they connected. Part of the requirement was you have to go to their, their uh, Friday afternoon events their networking events, if you will. But they were, they were worship events for the pagan gods. You wanted to be successful as a tradesman, you better go to these events where the pagan gods are celebrated. You see the dilemma? So you're a young Christian and you have a business. Maybe you make ironworks. And you decide you can't go to the assemblies anymore, the after networking events, and they stop doing business with you. Well, that's a powerful motivator, isn't it? Well, maybe it's okay just to go. Let's just go. You know, I I can still worship my God and go over here and participate in their practices to their pagan gods. I can do both. That's a problem. It's called compromise. So if last week was based on assimilation into culture, today is compromise with culture. If last week was spent what are we doing out there? This week's going to be spent, or what are we doing in here? A little difference. So this woman, whoever she is, she's known by the name Jezebel, is what he's calling her, because he wants to connect her to the Old Testament Jezebel. I'll tell you about her in just a minute. She's enticing them into sexual immorality, eating a food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. There's those eyes. Search hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So she's inviting compromise. Now here's the story of the Old Testament Jezebel. It's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 through 2 Kings chapter 9. Ahab was the king of Israel at the time. Uh, he's a ruling king. And so he wants to form an alliance uh, with the king of Sidon. So he marries one of the daughters, a princess named Jezebel. She's a Sidonian princess. So he, she, he brings her into his country. And she immediately, right from the very beginning, decides to eradicate worship of the one true living God, Yahweh, from Israel's culture. She brings in her gods. 
They start building temples. They lock up the, they lock up the temple to the one true God. Uh, they lock it up. You can't even get in. And they build temples around it so that you can't even get to it. Barricades. Imagine coming to church one day. The doors are locked. and We have barricades all around us. You can't even get to it. That's what she did. Her goal was not to, not to um, assimilate her religion. Her goal was to eliminate their religion and replace it with her own. Make sense? Yahweh worship is gone. It's gone. And so one of the things that she did was introduce sexual immorality. By the way, that's part of almost every ancient religion and many of the modern religions. If you go to the great temple of Madurai in Madurai, the Hindu temple there, I've been there many times. I can show you pictures. Uh, around, the, uh, around the edge, the perimeter of the, the temple all the way around, without ceasing, are phallic symbols engaged in sexual intimacy. If you wanted to, if you wanted to engage in that immorality, go to the temple. Temple prostitutes. By the way, in Corinth, they estimate there were a thousand temple prostitutes when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. That's the way the world works. Because you see, all throughout the Bible, God uses this picture, since it's so much a part of our culture even today, to symbolize that we are breaking faith with the one true God and we're now engaging with other gods. We don't know what it's like to be in a place where they had lots of icons to other gods. That's not the way we work. Our gods are more subtle. More, they're a little different. But the, the act of immorality still symbolizes the same thing, that we are being unfaithful to the one true God by pursuing gods that don't exist, pagan gods. That's what she did. She misleads the servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed idols. We know there's nothing wrong with eating food offered idols. Paul talks about that twice. Unless it represents the heart condition, then it is an issue. And that's what's happening in this church right here in Thyatira. He goes on to say, Now I say to the rest of you, these are the ones who are not compromising. Some of you are holding firm in your trades and your businesses. And this is who he's talking to. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except one, a very simple one. Hold on. Stay faithful. Hold on to what you have until I come. That's all he says. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Somehow, whatever this compromise is, it has to do with wisdom. The deep thoughts of Satan. What does Paul tell us in the Corinthian epistles? That God has given us his spirit so that we might know the deep thoughts of God. And these people are being seduced and lured away that they can compromise and they can have both. They can have the true God and the, and the secrets, the mystery religions, if you will. They can hear about those two. And uh, the author is saying, no, you can't. You can't do both. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Okay, first thing we learn, I understand the language is a little harsh, it's a little outside of our comfort zone for what we would experience today, but remember we're in the first century here, and this is a quote from Psalm 2, which is back a thousand years before that. What I want you to hear is, I will give authority over the nations. In other words, we will partner with Jesus. He is engaging us, those who are faithful, those who have turned to him, those who are not compromising, we'll share that partnership with him, that ruling prophecy, that part of life in the future. We'll have authority over the nations. That is an invitation. You realize that? That's an invitation. It's an invitation to do what's right, to bring God's God's glorious kingdom into this world right here. You ever think about the fact that the spirit, the same spirit that works in you is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Do you realize that? How powerful is that? You ever seen anybody raised from the dead? I haven't personally. That same spirit is a spirit that works in you. That's how much power is at work inside of you. Can we bring the kingdom of Jesus out to this county with that kind of power? What do you think? Can we? We can, can't we? What these letters are doing is giving us a picture of why, if we're not careful, it doesn't happen. This one's dealing with compromise. We don't want to lose our first love, do we? We don't want to abandon that. We don't want to be distracted by the cares of the world, do we? That's the second letter. We don't want to assimilate out into culture so that we can't tell the difference between them and us. Nor do we want to compromise internally. That's what we're talking about here. We will not compromise. Let me just tell you that. Our elders and staff are very committed. Yes, culture will always direct, challenge, question. They will do all those things, and an agile and flexible gospel will always address the needs that, and the issues that culture brings up, but we'll never let culture tell us how to do our business. That's what this is about. So what do we believe? We believe in the risen Lord Jesus, don't we? I do. Do you? That's what communion is all about. We're going to invite you to join us in that confession in just a minute. We believe in God the Father, creator of all. We believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We believe in the Trinity, don't we? The one true living God. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, don't we? We believe in the church as the bride of Christ, his means of bringing his glory out to this broken world. And this is a place, the bride of Christ, where we experience healing and redemption right here, where we experience community. We believe he's coming back for us. And we believe that his death was necessary for our salvation. It's his death on the cross that brought about salvation. This is Orthodox Christianity. We will never depart from that. We'll not compromise that. We won't. This is addressed to the churches. And there's two rewards. We share, we share in Christ in bringing the kingdom out to this broken world. And the other thing we share in is the morning star. The morning star. 
I'm going to read to you something from uh, N.T. Wright on the whole question of the morning star. Jesus promises to give them the morning star. Since later in the book, chapter 22, it is Jesus himself who is the morning star, we probably have here another hint of the level of intimacy which he offers to his people. Jesus is giving himself to us. Okay? But then he goes further. Um, He says he will share his very identity with them as we have just seen him do with his royal authority. He's sharing his authority with us. Now he's going to share his identity with us. But there's something more. Now remember who we're talking to, people in Thyatira, part of the Roman culture. But the morning star also was the planet Venus, which was worshipped by the ancients. It's at its pre-dawn, it's brightest at its pre-dawn. It's a sign of the special vocation and victory. So the worship of Venus was because of victory. So now he's talking their language again. What he's doing is he's redefining the morning star in terms of who Jesus is. Yeah, in Jesus is where we find true victory, not because of Venus. It's a sign of victory, but in this context, it becomes a sign of the special vocation of Christians, not least to those holding on when others around them seem to be compromising under pressure with local pagan practices. Christian witness is meant to be a sign just like Venus was to them. Christian witness is to be a sign of the dawning of the day, the day in which love, Faith, service, and patience will have their fulfillment. Those are the four things he says to them, that they're doing well, have their fulfillment. Idolatry and immorality will be seen as snares and delusions. They really are. They truly are. They're deceptive. They're satanic. Jesus the Messiah, in this context, will establish his glorious reign over the whole world. That's our job. So when he gives us the morning star, not only is he giving us himself, but he's redefining for them in that context, and it's worth us paying attention to, he's redefining one of their known signs for victory and says, no, we are the true sign, us, right here. You've heard me say many times, there's no no billboard out there that says God is glorious with flashing lights. There's no airplane flying overhead with a, a banner behind it. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3. We are the means by which God reveals his glory. That's the privilege we carry. That's the privilege we have when we don't compromise and when we hang in there to the end. So let me say one more word about compromise. Let me finish with this. I mentioned this book by Os Guinness, uh, Renaissance. The elder and staff read it. Renaissance, the power of the gospel, however dark the times. And he's addressing in here what's happening in the Western world and uh, the, the, the falling apart of the Western world and what role does the church play in, in, in what we're looking and seeing about us. It's a very intriguing book if you want to read it. What we have in the teaching of Jesus in the Scriptures and amplified in Augustine is the very heart of the secret of the culture-shaping power of the gospel in the church. Okay, now listen to that phrase. It's the very heart. This is what we see in Jesus' teaching. The very heart of the secret of the culture 
shaping power of the gospel. Of the gospel. What does Paul say in Romans 1? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He goes on. When the church goes to either of two extremes and is either in the world so much so that it is of the world and worldly or not of the world that it is otherworldly and might as well be out of the world altogether. When we are either in the world, these are the tendency of the church, so that you can't distinguish us, or we're no longer part of the world and we close our doors to anyone that's not like us, we become powerless and irrelevant. But when the church, through its faithfulness and its discernment of the times, lives truly in but not of the world and is therefore the city of God who engages the city of man, then it touches off the secret of its culture-shaping power. When we walk down that middle of the road where we do not compromise, but we don't abandon our first love, we care for people, then the world can see. That's what he's saying here. In short, the decisive power is always God's through his word and spirit. But on her side, the church contributes three distinct human factors to the equation. Engagement, discernment, and refusal. First, engagement. The church is called to engage and to stay engaged and to be faithful and obedient in that it puts aside all other preferences of its own and engages purposefully with the world as its Lord's as its Lord commands. We engage our friends and neighbors. We have conversations with them. Do you have a faith background? Mine's Christian. Do you know who Jesus is? I've had that conversation twice in the past week. Do you even know who he is? We start engaging them. Second, discernment. The church is called to discern, to exercise its spiritual and cultural discernment of the best and the worst of the world of its day in order to see clearly what it means to be in but not of the world it's important that we pay close attention to the culture we listen we engage we talk so that we can tell what it means to walk this road down the middle without compromise thirdly refusal the church is called to refuse a grand refusal to conform or to comply with anything and everything in the world that is against the way of Jesus and his kingdom. That's what our calling is. This is what the letter to Thyatira is pressing home. We will not compromise. We will not compromise. Father, thank you. Thank you for several things. First of all, Lord, the letters teach us that in all these communities where we have the small churches struggling to survive in a, in, a, in a culture that's almost overwhelming and overpowering in every way we can imagine. We see your care and your love for them. We see your intimate devotion. We see your passion for those believers who are standing firm. We see a power that we don't know much about. It's mysterious to us, but we see it. We can almost taste it. Occasionally we feel it. Thank you for caring for those churches because it gives, us, it gives us insight that you care for us as well at DCC. Thank you for loving us, Lord, 
we are at our very best. We're trying to be faithful without compromise, without assimilation, without losing our first love, abandonment, and without being distracted. We work very hard to stay focused on you. Help us as a church, Lord, to always guard what our forefathers gave us in the way of our truths and our doctrines about you. And finally, thank you for sacrificing yourself for us and being so generous uh, with us. In your son's name, amen.